Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. Today, we're talking with Chris Colinda about how to lead a life of significance. We'll talk about a lot of interesting topics, especially his time serving in Afghanistan and how that led to him 15 years later, biking halfway across the country. This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, we uh, appreciate you you coming on. And before we get into some of the topics I mentioned, just tell us a bit about yourself and also what made you want to join the Army? Well, yeah, I spent 24 and a half years in the Army. Um, I had no desire to join the Army. My parents directed me to apply to the service academy. So I applied to uh, Army and uh, and Air Force. And um, yeah, I was I was bullied pretty badly in high school. And I, I never wanted anybody to feel like that again. I never wanted to feel like that again. Never want anybody else to ever feel like that again. And so when the opportunity to West Point came up, uh, the, the first thing that went through my mind was if I say yes and I don't like it, I can always leave. If I don't go, then I'll always wonder whether I could have made it, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And, and then the other part of me said, this is a way to help me make sure I never feel like I did again in high school, um, especially in the early years, and and hopefully to be an influence on um, others so that nobody who ever works for me or nobody who ever is associated with me ever has to feel like that as well. So that uh, I guess that that sort of combination of things got me uh, got me in the door at the academy, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I kept an open mind about the army, and twenty four and a half years later, I had these uh, two once in a lifetime choices: take a very senior position in the army, or be the uh, secretary of defense's representative in some talks we were having with the Taliban. Uh, in 20, 2011 and 2012. And I thought, yeah, the first one would be a heck of a lot more fun. Second one is probably if I can help end a war successfully, uh, bring about a successful conclusion to this war, then I'm probably, it's probably how I can better serve. So I declined that uh, command, retired from the military and did that job for about two and a half years and and then resigned in 2014 after another Afghanistan deployment and and then started my own consulting business where I help uh I help CEOs get good at getting better and uh help entrepreneurs solo entrepreneurs consultants build a meaningful joyful and profitable business. Yeah. Well, that's uh, great. Thanks for sharing that and I appreciate your conundrum of which path you take towards the end of your military career. And I have a feeling it shows the the second one, which is maybe more difficult, uh, based a bit. I, I found on one of your websites, uh, your mission, that it's leading a life of significance to my family and friends, country, community, and humanity, and to each and every person I meet. And I imagine that's kind of a guiding principle that uh, kind of pushed you down uh, that decision choice. Yeah, it's always been something that I, I found um, I know just very compelling to me is that yeah, you can seek uh, material success, promotions, and money, and and possessions, etc. But it never it never results in happiness. But uh, significance is something that results in real joy and 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 real impact. 
And so that's how I've tried to lead my life. That's how I try to uh, encourage the the people that I work with to find things that bring them joy and where they can where they can make real impact and 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 focus there. And yeah. when you lead a life of significance, the 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 other things tend to take care of themselves. Yeah, it's like if you, you know, if you know where you're going, everything else seems to fall in line. Uh, really, well, what's uh, what's stopping most people from leading that life of significance? Well, there there are a few things. the The first is just not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, as as you said, if you don't know where you're going, you know, any road will take you there. And so, just not being mindful of what uh, you. Know, I mean, part of it's 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 uh, it's self awareness. What are what are my goals? What's really important to me? What are the values that help me make decisions? Uh, what are my what are my natural superpowers? And you don't have to sit in the lotus position on a beach or on a mountaintop for weeks and weeks and weeks to figure that out. You can figure it out pretty darn quickly, um, and it'll update over time. But that's the the sort of first thing is 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 that internal self awareness. And another thing that stops people is risk aversion. Mm-hmm. So some people are naturally more risk averse than others. And if you don't see a, you, know, you kind of, we're in a comfort zone and then beyond that comfort zone is a sort of a transformative zone, like where we want to be, but between a comfort zone and a transformation zone is the chaos zone. And uh, it can be really scary. And I'm sure you deal with this all the time. Be really scary to like, you know, where you want to go. Maybe you're not satisfied in your comfort zone, but it's like, how do I get through this chaos zone? Uh, because if I get trapped there, then you know the the wheels can come off and everything can spiral downhill. But if I've got a guide and I know how to get through the chaos zone, then I've got a lot more confidence in my ability to take some risk and to move out. So those are a couple of things that I think hold people back. Yeah, I, I believe it. Uh, I like how you mentioned the the guide, and I imagine you uh, picked up on that from your time at uh, West Point, one of the the service academies. I'll tell you a, a bit of my story is that I was uh, very shy, also bullied in uh, middle school, especially, uh, and really more of just a shy, probably just a shy personality uh, in general. So kind of the quiet person. And my parents encouraged me to go to the Navy summer seminar. Uh, we lived right next to Annapolis and right next to the U.S. Naval Academy. So I went to this mm. Navy summer seminar, spent a whole week there. I was nervous about it because I can't swim at that time. At that time, I didn't know how to swim. And here I am going to the, the Naval Academy for a, right. for a week. Well, just the amount of confidence they instill in you. Uh, the next week, so I left the Navy summer seminar. The next week, I walk into a, uh, a it was a running cross-country camp. I walk in there as the, the most confident, most gregarious person uh, of anyone there just because I had that one week of having that confidence and into me. And I, I think that two weeks just changed the trajectory of my life where I went to the summer seminar uh, at the U S Naval Academy and just had a whole lot of confidence instilled in me. And then I recognized the entire next week because it's all these mm. people from all across the country. And, you know, of course it's all shy, 16 year old, 17 year olds. And I walk in just kind of knowing who I am and what I can do. And it just felt good. Like, oh, wait a second. Uh, just, having this confidence is a great thing and just try to keep doing that throughout my life. Uh, just having that, that guide and having that probably even just the, the mission that they're in one week, one week, they had a bit of a, uh, a higher calling uh, installed in, into me uh, from that, that summer seminar. 
Right, right, absolutely. And and there's a you know there's a good leadership principle in there, which is if your team, your organization is just, I mean, sometimes you just have a string of rotten luck. It happens. Do things very deliberately to create wins. Yeah. And just get back in that habit of creating wins uh, and building confidence. And yeah, that helps your team emerge from it. And it's works the same on the individual level as we've both experienced. I mean, yeah, for me, seventh through 10th grades were like, that was like the mm-hmm. seventh circle of hell. Never want to go through that again. Don't want, don't wish that on anybody. And yeah, I mean, just having that change of venue and getting a fresh start and being able to, to build that, that self-confidence um, knowing that, you know, I can be really good at this. Yeah. And you've clearly gotten good at things, right? You, you, you got so good. You actually wrote a book on leadership. And I want to talk about that because most of us listening right. have not fought an actual enemy on an actual battlefield. Uh, and you wrote this book. It's called Leadership, the Warrior's Art. And it's kind of well known that uh, throughout history that there's some leadership principles from from war fighting. Uh, not that that's a reason to go to war, right? But <laughs> uh, there's some leadership principles that that come out of it. But uh, what can us civilians, what can we learn about leadership from true warriors on an actual battlefield? Uh, well, first of all, that uh, that there's no such thing as military leadership. Mm-hmm. It's just leadership. Yeah. And the context might be a little bit different, but it's you're dealing with people and you are trying to inspire people to contribute their best to, to your organization's success. I mean, that's what leadership is all about. And it doesn't matter if you're in the military, it doesn't matter if you're in financial services, if you're in the corporate world or the public sector, it's that's what leadership is all about. And when you look as this book does, I mean, we start in ancient Greece and Rome and there are different chapters written by different people, many of whom became three and four star generals. And when you look back at the uh, ancient uh, Greeks and Romans, um, and and even when you look back at ancient China and other civilizations, I mean, the same principles kind of come out again and again. And, you know, leadership is about inspiring people to contribute their best to your team's success. It's all about trust. You know, the ancient Greeks talked about uh, this concept called arete, which is this combination of character and competence that you had to not only be good at what you did, so the competence had the skills to be able to do the job, uh, but also the character. So people could knew that you could be relied upon. And then you also, when you really look at what makes the best leaders, you add a third C. So character, competence, caring. Um, because when people know that you care, then they don't question your motives. They know that what you're doing, even, even when you have those hard conversations, even when you're asking them to do something really difficult, when they know that you care, they are going to rise to the occasion. If they don't believe that you care, then they're going to question, uh, well, what's this really about? Is this about the, you know, this person's ego? Is this, are they sending me on this mission because they don't like me? Is, uh, am I getting this feedback because they don't like me or is it because they want what's best? So you can learn a lot in civil war battlefields. You go to any civil war battlefield, Gettysburg, Antietam, you'll see a lot of leaders on horseback. And Part of the reason why the leaders on horseback is because you could see a little bit better, but 
you know, that's about the only advantage. And they're not on horseback because they're privileged or lazy or anything like that. Part of it's seeing a little bit better, but mostly it's because they're setting the example. Because when they're as the most vulnerable person on the battlefield, because when you're on a horse, everybody's shooting at you. You are the biggest target. Everybody's shooting at you. And the message is, if I can stay here as the most vulnerable person on the battlefield, as the most vulnerable person in this organization, and do my job, you can stand in the ranks and do yours too. I mean, today, are you willing to be a little bit vulnerable you know, in front of your organization? Are you willing to take the exam- set the example? Are you willing to take the shots? Or do you sort of cocoon yourself in your own body armor? And and when you cocoon yourself in body armor, then you you can't grow. Uh, people lose respect for you, and uh, they are not going to to contribute their best. Um, so we talk to leaders about the lobster principle. You know, we don't know how big lobsters can grow, and in order for them to grow, they have to shed their armor. And um, and do so strategically, you know, they're not overshedding or oversharing among predators. You know, they figure out, okay, now's the right time to, you know, to, to molt, to get out of my shell, grow, and then grow the shell back. I've got a great, uh, interesting example of vulnerability, if you'll, you know, Let's let me tell it. this story. Appreciate it. Um, one of my captains in Afghanistan, his name is Joey Hutto. He, uh, he was the captain in the toughest part of our area gotten in a lot of firefights very deadly area and he'd been working to build bridges to the elders in that area and uh finally they they said okay we'd like you to come to dinner at my one of the elders homes and in that culture Afghan culture, if somebody invites you as a guest in their house, then they take responsibility for their, for your security. It's a very, I mean, it's a very proud part of their tradition. And, and Joey knew this at the same time. I mean, he's, he's walk, he's going to have to walk into somebody's home, not knowing if he's going to come out dead or alive. So he gets to the edge of the village, takes off his body armor, hands it to his patrol, takes off his helmet gives him his weapon and walks with an interpreter into this compound. I mean, totally, you know, totally vulnerable. And he asked them what, you know, why are people fighting? Um, help me to understand this. And they talked about all the grievances that had gone on for the last couple of years. And Joey completely turns the situation by being vulnerable, first of all. And second, by saying, yeah, I appreciate you telling me all of this, things I didn't know. And I can't change what happened in the past, but we can figure out how to work together in the future. And it completely turned the dynamic of the conversation. And that point there led eventually to a situation where a big insurgent group stopped fighting and and switched sides. Oh, that's amazing. And it's just, uh, I appreciate that story. It's a great story. And really, I think it comes to that third C you mentioned, besides character, competence, but caring, and just right. a general perception of military. It's 
it's not supposed to be a caring organization, I, I imagine, or that's maybe a, a perception at least. Uh, and yet I, I remember, and we'll link to a, a YouTube video that featured you through the AARP, uh, where you talk about the love you have for the, the people who served uh, with you. So beyond that story, there's just another great example of how the caring uh, is, is a big part of, of leadership wherever it uh, comes in. And I also love the story about the civil war leaders on horseback, where it's a bit about seeing others, but really more about others seeing you and right. uh, how you're acting. Uh, of course, you've mentioned, uh, the, I've mentioned the book and you mentioned your time uh, in Afghanistan. You published that book in the summer of 2001. So you had no clue right. that the world was about to change on September 11th, uh, 2011. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a, a quote about those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's you know, probably close to that. You were a history professor. You wrote that book. You published it uh, right before September 11th. How did your study of history prepare you for your time in combat? Well, it was instrumental. I, I think out in Afghanistan in a 15-month deployment, which is really, really long time, mm -hmm. and through two Afghan fighting seasons. So the fighting season is kind of the spring, summer, early mm -hmm. fall. So we went through two of those. And I found that going to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin prepared me for the complexity of that environment far better than any military training program ever did. And it was because you had to have an open mind about how people saw the world differently. You had to, you had to create empathy. I mean, the only way that you can really research well and understand issues well, and to ultimately to lead well and deal in complex, uncertain, ambiguous environments is through open-mindedness and empathy. And so it helped me build that and helped me to see the world not in very sort of um, Manichaean terms, but uh, through shades of gray and to understand mm -hmm. that uh, yeah, that people have different points of view. I, I remember this again in Afghanistan. We'd been getting our main outpost, we getting rockets from the uh, other side of the Kunar River. So we were right up against the Pakistan border and uh, the Kunar River, pretty sizable river. There were no bridges that went across that river that were capable of holding our vehicles. So anytime we would go on the other side of that, any distance would have to be by helicopter. And so it was very difficult for us to get out there. The insurgents knew that. And so they've been firing rockets at us. 107 millimeter rockets will send a piece of shrapnel about that big, you know, size mm -hmm. of a baseball and launch it the size of a football field and very deadly when they hit. So they were getting really annoying, these rocket attacks, and they'd happen to our predecessors. And it was just like, okay, circle the wagons. What are we going to do about this? And the conventional answer was, well, do a military operation, we call a cordon and search, find the weapons caches, destroy them, arrest people who have residue on their fingertips and stuff like that. And, and um, I just wasn't satisfied that that was really going to work or be sustainable, be a kind of a one-off and then things go back to where they were. And so my Afghan counterpart, a guy named Shir Ahmad, a battalion commander in the Afghan army says, how about if I go talk to him? and just see what's going on. And I was like, <laughs> that's brilliant. Give it a um, shot. 
Yeah, yeah. Why don't I reach out? And so his vehicles could get across the river. So he loads up his about 250 of his soldiers. And you know, we put some aircraft overhead and stuff like that to help keep them safe. And he's he's gone for the better part of the day. And he comes back and and uh, I was like, hey, you know, how how did things go? He's like, oh, they're they're really good people, uh, really nice people. But yeah, they're they're shooting rockets at you. Or at us. I mean, because he's yeah. part of that too, you know, he's right. shooting rockets at us. Yeah, the rockets are coming from their area. I said, all right, why? And he explained that, well, a couple of years ago, some people had raided their town, some special forces and Afghan militias had raided their town at night, disrespected the elders, and they had all sorts of grievances associated with it. And shooting rockets at our base was their retribution. Okay. What else do you find out? So, well, uh, they really want their kids to go to school and their kids are, you know, the girls go in the morning, the boys go in the afternoon. There's about 350 or so in each class. They don't have a building. They just have like a three walled compound, no roof. And they've got like a one little sort of chalkboard, very tiny one, maybe a you know, two foot by three foot chalkboard. And that's it. The rest of the kids just write their letters and numbers in the dirt with a stick. So they really want, they, they really like school. They really want their kids to, to be educated. I'm like, all right. Um, well, we'd been collecting school supplies for uh, when people ask, what can we send? I said, don't send candy and stuff like that. Send us notebooks and pens. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, we all want what's best for our kids. So we had truckloads of this stuff. So I asked Sherman, would you be willing to go back there? He said, sure. We load him up with school supplies and he goes back. He's gone for the day and he said, yeah, everything went real well. The next morning, it's like a Friday morning. I get an, I get a call from the front gate saying, you know, sir, there's a bunch of elders here to see you. That wasn't, I wasn't expecting anybody that day. It's like, where are they from? And he said, well, they're from this village. And so I was like, okay, yeah, let them in. And, you know, they, they walked a couple of hours to, yeah make their way to the outpost. And so we're going around meeting everybody and get to the, finally get to the, the, the head elder. And he gives me a stack of papers. And I said, what's this? And he says, these are thank you notes written by our children on the notebooks and pens that you gave them. And there would be more, but uh, some of their kids didn't think their handwriting was good enough for you, you know? And, and it was, it was such a magical moment and we spent the rest of the day together, figured out how to work together and towards common objectives. And I mean, just working to see ourselves through somebody else's point of view and working to see ourselves or to understand somebody's interests and objectives. I mean, that kind of empathy was, uh, I mean, was one of those valuable things that I learned in, uh, in graduate school and then, and then teaching at the academy. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking here through that story about uh, just how a lot of us Americans view the other side, whatever the other side is, but especially it seems like the other side is whoever doesn't believe your own personal politics. And here you are expressing empathy and working together with an enemy combatant, right? This is this is a military on the battlefield uh, combatant situation, and yet you're able to find ways to really see some common ground and, and express that that empathy so thanks for thanks for sharing that i'm hoping we're all thinking of how we can maybe do that with our other side whatever that other side 
uh, might be, but it seems like these days it's a lot more. The other side is just the the anti politics of of whatever your own personal politics is. I learned a thing about about conflict management through right. all of that. Um, yeah. and workplace conflict can only be about one of two things. If it's professional, can only be about one of two things. It's either about objectives or ways to get there. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what workplace conflict is all about. And so the first thing that you got to do when there's a workplace dispute is, okay, do we agree on the goal? What's the goal? And do we agree that this is the goal that we're aiming for? And sometimes you'll find no. Um, sometimes you'll find some disagreements about that goal and, and, and the point, the results and outcomes that you're looking for. But if you find that you've got agreement on the goal, then the, then the issue is, is on the ways and how to get there. And, and so once you've isolated, like what, what is the nature of the dispute? And if it's about ways, then, okay, what's your prescription? What's your prescription? What are the facts that support yours? What are the facts that support yours? And, and you can, you can resolve this conflict once people are speaking about the same things and, you know, figuring out how to uh, work together towards common objectives. And that, that's kind of what we did in Afghanistan and how I translate that into the consulting I do for, for organizations. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our five-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com. Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. Yeah, well, you got it. And you're not the first guest we've had on our show with a connection to the military. We had Lieutenant Colonel Dale Coinga on the show. He was talking about Veterans Day. This episode is the last one before Memorial Day. And I'm just going to assume that for most of us listening, Memorial Day really means barbecues in the beginning of summer. And I'm also going to assume it means something different to you, Chris. So just tell me a bit about Memorial Day, what it means to you, and what you'd like us to consider and think about when we're enjoying our Memorial Day holiday. Yeah, I um, and I encourage everybody to enjoy their Memorial Day holiday. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, we we lost uh, six six of our paratroopers were killed in action in Afghanistan, and their names are uh, uh, Chris Pfeiffer, Adrian Hike, Jacob Lowell, uh, Ryan Fritchie, Dave Boris, and Tom Bostic. Uh, those are the six from my unit who were killed in action, and I mean, I th- I think about them daily. You know, they were just, they were, they're part of us. They're part of the family. And I, I did this 1700 mile bicycle ride that you mentioned that last fall to visit their graves and to raise funds for the, uh, for the foundation to support the 800 surviving veterans and, and their families. And, and so it, it means to me, it just, an, a, it's another opportunity to think about them think about their stories to think about uh, the times that we had together. Cause I, I, you know, I, I knew all of them. And um, so that's, you know, that's what Memorial day means to me. It's a day of, of remembering people who, who were killed in our, in our, in our nation's wars. I mean, that's the, 
that's the official definition. And and for me, it's it's focusing on those six in particular. Yeah, and you mentioned it. Then you, of course, you took more than just one day to honor those those six troops. Uh, you took basically an entire month. Uh, <laughs> tell us about the the bike ride, especially. I was reading into it, learning about it. You were not a biker. I, I'm a road biker a bit. Uh, I just kind of assumed you're just a road biker that thought this is a great excuse uh, to go for an extra long ride, but that was not the case. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we're coming up on the 15-year anniversary of that deployment. And I mean, what the what the, our folks did out there was something extraordinary, which is, and and I think unprecedented, which was motivating a large insurgent group to stop fighting and, and, and switch sides. I think it's the only example in the 20-year history of the war. Uh, but there's a lot of hard fighting along the way, and and six of our six of our team were, were were killed in action. And so I thought that I want to do something significant to mark that anniversary, and and that involved visiting their their graves, talking to their families. I mean, for some of them, some of them I've been able to stay in contact with in the 15 years. Others I just I wasn't able to. And so the last time I spoke with them was the day their loved one was killed. So I wanted to do something significant, and I thought. Well, I could I could drive the distance, you know, drive to each gravesite. That, that'd just be kind of lame. I could walk the distance. I'm, I'm capable of walking the distance, but it would just take way too long. So I said to myself, I know I could ride a bike. I bet I could ride a bike 1,700 miles. I mean, people ride bikes cross country. I could, I, you know, I could do this. The only problems were that I didn't own a bicycle, and I hadn't ridden a bicycle in 20 years. And I thought, and this was about 18 months before start time. And I said, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to spend about a year and a half getting in shape. So I went out and bought a road bike, hired a cycling coach to get my butt in shape. And then I started telling people, so I don't chicken out. And, and so trained probably 10,000 miles or more over the course of those of those uh, months. And so uh, September 25th of uh, 2022, which is 15 years to the day when Chris Pfeiffer died of wounds, I started the, the ride there in Spalding, Nebraska, and then uh, went to each site, uh, basically moving moving west to east and ending up in Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah, got it. Uh, that's just amazing. Amazing, Ryan. There's some great articles that go into more detail from the Journal Sentinel in Milwaukee, AERP. There's that uh, video that the AERP put together. So I'm going to put that uh, in the show notes. Anyone can go and listen to our, uh, or read the show notes and, and get that. Uh, it's retirement-reveal.com where you'll see all that uh, in the, the link there for Chris's uh, episode here. Uh, but you also did it to raise some funds for a foundation, the Saber Six Foundation. Tell us about that. Uh, thanks. I thought as... I'm training for this ride. I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it could actually do some good with this. And my brother advised me to set up a set up a 501c3, a foundation, and and so I did that. And um, thought, you know, we can do some good with this by helping the 800 surviving veterans and their families to thrive. And I really find that, you know, particularly in this standpoint, a lot of our units veterans are actually entering the most dangerous days of their lives even more dangerous in combat and the reason is first of all post-combat stress or post-traumatic stress we all have it um you don't go through that kind of 
fighting for 15 months and not come out of it with some degree of post-traumatic stress or post-combat stress. Uh, I call it post-traumatic stress normal because everybody's got it. If you're normal, you have it. And the question is whether you can let your past control you or you control your past and then do use it to to help you grow. So everybody's got post-traumatic stress. The second factor is they're approaching midlife. So the average age is about 35 to 40 years old or 33 to 40 right now of the group of 800. And happiness is, as you know, follows a U-shaped curve. So at the top of the curve on the, on the left-hand side is your early 20s. And the top of the curve on the right-hand side is your early 60s. And then the very bottom of the U is age 47. And and so for a lot of our our paratroopers, they were in combat at the top of the happiness curve. And when you're there, you are, I mean, you're surrounded by the sense of mission and purpose. Like I'm defending my country, defending the constitution against people who attacked us on September 11th. You feel this intense belonging, like the person to my left and the person to my right, they get me. They've got my back and I've got theirs. And in this sense that I've got 300 million Americans want me to be successful. And so you're, you're, that's your first professional experience, by the way. And that's a very powerful feeling. And then you leave that. And then of course you're getting older and you're making your way down the happiness curve and you get out and for a lot of veterans, it's like, all right, wait a minute. You know, the, the sense of purpose just isn't the same out here. And maybe I don't have the, I haven't been given the tools to create new purpose on my own. So I don't know how to do that. But I all, what I do know is that making a buck or punching a time clock, it ain't it. I don't feel that same sense of purpose anymore. Nobody out here gets me. I don't have this sense of belonging because nobody out here gets me. Nobody's got my back. In fact, sometimes they're trying to stab me in it. They might say, thank you for your service, but they have no idea what I did in the service. And so it feels like empty praise. And then you feel like just nobody knows how to help. And if you let that go too far, then you can very easily drift into depression. And depression, as you know, is the gateway towards self-harm, substance abuse, and suicide. Since September 11th, 7,500 service members have been killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, over 30,000 veterans and service members in that same period have died by suicide. 22 veterans die by suicide daily. Within our own unit, we've lost more to suicide and overdoses than to enemy fire, you know, at this point. And one of uh, one of our best non-commissioned officers, I mean, this happens to everybody. One of our best non-commissioned officers in 2007, I found out lives in a dumpster mm. outside of a city library in Northern California. And he's a, he's a meth addict. And, and he's one of several stories like that. Other people are just struggling to find this new sense of purpose and belonging. Some are really thriving and we want to help them to soar to new heights. But I thought, you know, I, I can't know this is happening to people who had my back 
in Afghanistan and, and not try to do something about it. And, and so if we can help people recognize that this combination of post-traumatic stress, midlife, and struggle for purpose and belonging is normal and give people the tools that they can use to power through that, to find that new purpose, to see the their life through the windshield instead of through the rearview mirror, then we're going to do some good and we're going to keep more people alive. Two of our, our paratroopers, just from hearing, just knowing that this happened, this uh, ride and the foundation have already checked themselves into inpatient care units to, you know, to deal with post-traumatic stress and, and, and substance abuse. Um, we've got 50 participants now in our, our various programs about mental, emotional, physical health, leadership, and, and career coaching. And um, so I'm very excited about helping people um, that, you know, we are all together we all feel like we belong with one another and helping each other through this period to soar to new heights. Uh, I feel very good about what we're doing. Yeah. Well, you should. And, and it good for those service members for taking that step to check themselves into what they need for the, the care. And uh, it's so great that it was your bike ride as a foundation. May, maybe had a spark to inspire them uh, to yeah. do that. Once people know that what they're going through is normal, that they're not alone and people have got their backs. I mean, that's very empowering, but if you just yeah. feel isolated and alone, then that's just a, that's a dark road. Yeah, definitely. Well, we want to do some things together and oftentimes we'll give away a book on the podcast to people that write in and said, I want to uh, do a, a gift match and, and in honor of the six soldiers uh, who you mentioned earlier, I'd love to have, I want to have, six of you listening to donate a hundred dollars or more to the Saber Six Foundation. We'll put some links in the notes. Take a screenshot, send that to me, podcast at kylefp.com. Uh, we'll do a hundred dollar gift match as well. So hopefully we can get more than $1,200 raised to the Saber Six Foundation. And just uh, send me that screenshot that you went ahead and, and donated a hundred dollars or more uh, to the foundation to, to podcast at kylefp.com. And we'll do that, that gift match. That's awesome. Thank you very much. That uh, yeah, $1,200 will put um, six people through five sessions of this really awesome yoga program that we have. Yeah, That's totally right. focused on mind, mindfulness, relaxation. I just did it. And I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a game changer. If you're like me and you have trouble settling down sometimes um, just taking that, that one hour a week mm -hmm. just to, not do anything but focus on you and you know relaxing focusing on your health is um i mean it's it's really powerful yeah definitely well chris thanks for sharing your story sharing your thoughts on how to lead a life of significance i've got one more question for you but before that tell us what's the best way for people to reach out to you the best way is just through by email chris at strategicleadersacademy.com and i'll i'll of course, share that with you. you can put it in the in the show notes, and you can also go to either of my websites, strategicleadersacademy.com. That's my business site, or sabersixfoundation.com, which is the nonprofit site. Excellent, that's great. Well, final question, Chris. Tell us something about yourself that few people know about, and remember, this podcast is rated clean. <laughs> I love reading fantasy novels. 
whether it's well fantasy historical fiction i get so much out of out of that as a you know as a as a history nerd that likes to make it applicable to daily life and also as somebody who's more on the introvert scale than than the extrovert scale really fiction really helps me to build empathy um and to see the world through different eyes and different points of view and and plus is hugely entertaining. So historical fiction and fantasy are my jam. I love the uh, Michael and Jeffrey Sharov great series on the Civil War that I love reading. Um, uh, let's see, Bernard Cornwall has got some great series on the uh, medieval England and, and the Napoleonic Wars. And then Bernard Sanderson is uh, and Brent Weeks are both dynamite. I love their books. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Brandon and, uh, Sanderson. And, excuse me. Brandon Sanderson. Sorry about that. Well, it's some great Brandon stuff. Sanderson and Brent Weeks. I uh I've really gotten to enjoy not or fantasy wise. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Well, Chris, we really appreciate you you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you, Jeremy. And uh thanks for all your support. You got it. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you'll feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning.